information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, today, I'm joined by Dr. Wyland who is one of our assistant professors in peds cardiology from UMC. Thanks for joining us today, man. Thanks for having me. It's been it's a pleasure. So this morning we're going to talk a little about congenital heart defects, uh, their management, some of the arrhythmias we deal with, uh, something that we see a lot more in Mississippi than we'd kind of like, honestly. We see a pretty good bit here in transport. We deal with it a lot, but it's something that scares a lot of people, um, especially when they're in transition or the ones that are five days out and they didn't recognize and like, hey, maybe we have a heart defect and let's figure it out. So first things first, when we talk about congenital heart defects, what, what is your definition? What do you think of when you start thinking, talking about CHDs? Yeah. And so um, in general, congenital heart disease is exactly what it sounds like. It is something inherently you know, inborn that results in you know, typically a, a structural defect um, and, and potentially a clinical scenario as a result of that. Congenital heart disease is universe considered something that occurs in about one in 100 to one in every 110 live births. And th- those things ranging from things that are benign, that never need any kind of intervention, to things that become uh, critical in the first minutes to hours of life, and, and a little bit of everything in between. Different breakdowns of the things that are more common, the most common things being simple atrial septal defects, ventricular septal defects, patent ductus arteriosus, uh, but then getting to more complicated things such as tetralogy of flow, hypoplastic left heart, transition of great arteries that become more more evident usually quicker in life. And so, you know, that's kind of the um, the the one of the the fun things and interesting things about our field is that is that variety and, and how each thing generally can present differently. And and there's a, a variety of ways that that each you know diagnosis can present itself in the challenge of management and doing the right, doing the right thing for, for patient family with, with, you know, whatever comes up. A lot of things people we've done right is, you know, now they have to have screenings every time for as far as babies being born. Hey, they look fine. All right. Let's do the sad on the left or the right arm and the right leg and all that kind of stuff. And the blood pressures. Do you think that stuff's helped or? Yes, I, I do. Especially in a, uh, in a state like Mississippi where there are a lot of births that occur, you know, farther away from tertiary centers. It is not a perfect tool, and that's one of the, you know, so there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of proponents for, for the CCHD screens. We're talking about the congenital uh, heart disease screening, and, and, and not in the too distant future, one of our previous fellows, along with one of our, our previous fact members, actually published uh, some data on the use of CCHD screening here in Mississippi and did show that it, it improved the, the time to diagnosis of some of these that are going to present time at birth. But it's not a perfect tool. There are certain things that are not going to show up. Again, this is a, you know, the first C is critical congenital heart disease. So a, a simple VSD, ASD, those kind of things, you know, maybe even the, um, you know, the, the tetralogy of flow that is more, has less pulmonary stenosis is more of a VSD physiology. Those things aren't going to pop up. What you're generally going to catch is lesions that have significant mixing and significant shunning. So the, the, the cutoff line being 96% saturation pre and post ductal. Most things that are going to require something within the first week or two of life are not going to achieve that level. One notable exception that, that can be uh, missed with this is the discrete or also termed juxtaductal coarctation of the aorta, which in the presence of a, you know, sizable PDA at, you know, one or two days of life 
may still allow the aorta to be open enough to pass a normal blood pressure from top to bottom. So there are some, some things that don't get caught there, but in general, when you look at, you know, what it's done for a state like ours, it definitely is beneficial. We, uh, we did a journal club review with our fellows. We, we do, it's one of our kind of rolling didactics. One of the fellows is a monthly journal club and the folks at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia published something a while back that actually kind of, you know, argued the utility of CCAC screen. But when you look at it, it's, it's in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where you don't have to go very far to be born at a tertiary center that can just they check have, these things They have out. lots of level ones and level twos around that state. Exactly. And so it's, uh, you know, I think when you, when you look at what it is and, and, and what you're doing for a state like ours, it's very important to, to do that screen and, and to interpret the results correctly. But also as uh, for pediatricians, you know, that are going to end up seeing these patients knowing that, you know, there are a few pitfalls and a good general exam within the first week or two at, the, at that newborn check is, is still very important. I'm glad you, our, our Neo friends and our, that part of our team is going to be very happy. You Thanks. said co-art. <laughs> they feel like we go get those every day. Yeah. Uh, it's not every day, but right. it's, it's a pretty good bit. Also brings up a good point. You talk about the screenings and stuff. Stuff gets missed, some things, but it's important to do them. Even if it's, you walk in, you get a kid, hey, they're three or four days old. Something's not right. Uh, we get called or paramedic gets called and says, hey, my baby's acting not right. You could be a nervous mom first time. It could be anything from just, hey, baby, spit up a little bit to, yeah, okay, this is might have a problem. It's important to check them all the way out, even again. If something could get missed. It's nothing wrong with doing it again. Right, absolutely. So we start talking about CHDs if they do get diagnosed. So they do come to you or whoever yeah. and say, hey, all right, well, we've got a VSD, ASD. You talk about some stuff you never do anything for. Right. Is it just one of those you follow up every three, six, eight, 12 months? Yeah, it varies depending on what it, what it is and, and what we're following. And, and honestly, too, the, the you know, physician preference um, and family preference, too. It's, you know, it, there, it, when there are things that are clearly indicated to do something about, you know, there's less variation. So what ends up happening, you know, one, one place that you kind of transition is the sort of smallish to moderate size VSD right after birth, especially ones that are in the what we call muscular, more muscular part of the, the ventricle. And that's, that's kind of farther down into the, the lower chambers at a place where as the, the child grows, as the heart grows, the, the muscle fibers tend to kind of close up any smaller defects. And, and so you know those have a higher chance of getting smaller, potentially going away. And so, you know, what usually happens is those, those babies where it's, it's not clear that, you know, they, first off, they're not going to start having sort of the, you know, the quote unquote, you know, congestive heart failure symptoms. I put quotes around that because it's a very different thing. We'll get I'll talk about that in, in a second, but you don't start having those symptoms until really getting close to at least one, if not closer to two months of life as the, the pulmonary vascular resistance of the, the lung starts to drop. So right after birth, there will really be no shunting across any kind, any size VSD because the, the, the vascular resistance of the lungs is still very high from the, from the fetal transition and so there's no real driving force to send the blood from the left side over the right. As that falls to essentially normal over the first two or three months, that's when you start getting the, you know, more left-right shunt and pulmonary overcirculation. And so, you know, you have a, a bit of a grace period over, you know, a month or two where almost no size VSD is going to have a, a lot of problems at that point. And then if it's large, we'll start through some medical management, try to get the child, you know, closer to, you know, four to six months. And that management generally being diuretics, just trying to, pull off some of the fluid from the, from the lung, from the lung vasculature and keep left atrial hypertension, you know, down a bit. Yeah. People also bring up doing, you know, afterload reduction like an alapril and, and, you know, digoxin for its, its magical properties. But in reality, you know, diuretic is the, the main thing that to fix a 
you know, the medical treatment of a surgical problem is what it comes down to. But, you know, if you have a smaller one, you have more time to kind of watch. And those are the kids we'll kind of watch every, you know, month if it's questionable, a couple of months and, and see if it starts to get narrow, you know, smaller. Uh, watch for any signs of pulmonary overcirculation. Watch for signs of, of a hemodynamic change of the heart, which is generally left side, left-sided dilation to know, okay, this is more of a problem. Maybe, you know, does warrant closure. Or if it just keeps getting smaller and those problems are never there, then it, it, it may not need intervention at all at any point. Something you brought up just a second ago, you said left side of dilation. So if I pull up somebody's chart, because I, I can do that here. Right. <laughs> uh, speaking specifically for our team, but if, if I pull up somebody's charts and I see the echo report and it says left side of dilation is worsening from last time, yeah. that's something that should be concerning right off the bat of saying, hey, this is something that, all right, this kid's going right. into heart failure. This is a progressive process. They're going to need surgical intervention. And if I'm picking up this kid, just go ahead and think, hey, this is – yeah. Probably real, not no. Yeah, more one. more than likely, and also it depends on the age. So if you've got, let's say you go to a call, you know, this is this is a call that you would get. You know, there's a it's called like a five month old uh, with a history of VSD that that has, you know, our report says, you know, left atrial dilation and, and left ventricular dilation, and you know, they're you're, you're transporting them from an ER or from a clinic or you're, or from home because of you know poor feeding, some difficulty breathing. Yeah, that's that's there's a good chance that what you're looking at there is you know, a, at least in some part, um, some pulmonary edema that's, that's making things worse. Now, you know, tricky part is that RSV season seems to have moved from the, from the winter to the summer. And <laughs> so, say, you know, we're rampant here. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know if there is an RSV season anymore, but, but nonetheless, <laughs> like any of those things will add to all those problems. And, and, you know, neonatal and infant respiratory physiology is, is fairly tenuous because, you know, going into more area that you know more about than, than me, but, you know, the, the baby's, you know, lung compliance is poor and the, the rib and thorax compliance is great. And so your baby's already at a point where, you know, the lungs want to go in. They're having to use more work to push them out. Any little bit of fluid is going to make that worse. And then you throw a virus on top of that, they're, they're going to start going downhill. So, you know, what it comes it's a, down it's to. It's a chicken egg thing. Exactly. Like what, what happened first is heart failure on top of it. Is it, exactly. oh, I got RSV and now my heart's worse. And I'm creating that like septic myocarditis kind of thing or anacarditis. Right. It's kind of what I think of. But like you. What happened yeah, first? Exactly. And, and we did this, well, to be very clear. You know, there is a lot of angst of, and, and concern a lot of times, reasonably so, about oxygen administration to, to these kids. And, I, and, and, and yes, we, you know, we typically advise there are certain conditions in which you'll make it worse doing that. And that's, that's true in a large, technically a large VSD may be one of those. But that's where you kinda, we kind of have to evaluate, you know, what the child is actually suffering from. If you've got a kid with, you know, the same five-month-old that, you know, maybe an x-ray doesn't have a lot of pulmonary edema, but there's a focal infiltrate. Okay. Well, their, you know, their desaturation may not be as much, you know, shunting, streaming kind of stuff because of, you know, the VSD is, as it is atelectasis. And in that situation, you know, some supplemental oxygen administration may help, especially if it goes along the lines of needing, you know, respiratory support and, and positive pressure ventilation. You just have to assess what the needs are, but also knowing that, you know, even with, even though, yes, it's a left to right shunt, a large VSD lesion will very rarely result in perfectly normal SATs. So, you know, if you're achieving 88 to 90, you know, with good restory effort, that's probably fine. Whereas, you know, if you're at 92 with poor restory effort, something's yes, wrong. Yeah, yeah exactly. Something you can, wrong. you know, you can address that and potentially provide, you know, some supplemental oxygen gently as as you might need. So let's let's kind of go back. You mentioned the the congenital heart defects with the congestive heart failure symptoms. So I'm right. I'm like you. I don't like the 
I don't like it just heart failure. I like saying, let's just call it heart failure. Yeah. Uh, sure. Let's just call it acute heart failure. Right. You got those symptoms you're talking about, but you're talking about, you know, right failure, left failure. Is it get back in the lungs? Is it an infiltrate? Is it something else? What that also goes back to what you were just saying, assess your patients. So look at them. Are they retracting all the way to their neck? Is this a problem? Are they just using some accessory muscle use? Is this what stage of respiratory failure or respiratory distress are they at? Is also important, right. to, not just a number. A lot of people get wrapped around the axle these days in medical stuff with numbers of what's the lab say this or what's the SAT say this. Right. Looking at your patients just as important, I think, to me. When you start saying, when you think of heart failure symptoms, especially in these kids, so typically adult world, you get the pedal edema, you can hear the the fluid just pouring out of their entire lungs all the way through them. What is something you assess in these kids to say, hey, they're starting to develop a more acute arm failure or a chronic heart failure? Yeah. So, you know, in the acute, you know, minute-to-minute management, respiratory effort is going to be one of them, respiratory rate, and, and heart rate as well. So, you know, the reason I, I say, quote-unquote, I, I don't like the term heart failure because what ends up happening is we, we talk to families and, and we it, with, you know, shunt lesions like this, and we get to the point where we start saying the words heart failure. What they think of is exactly what you thought, which is older people with hearts that don't work well, and they either need medications forever or a transplant or something else, and then right heart and left heart. It's a totally different thing. This is a, this is a, there's a hole between the chambers that the blood is going back to the lungs, and that is leading to pulmonary congestion. So it's congestive heart failure, I suppose, and then leads to left, all that blood's got to come somewhere. So it goes back to the left atrium, leading to left atrial hypertension. And yes, those endpoints are similar to sort of the adult pump doesn't work and the child, you know, pump is just sending blood to the wrong place. The difference is once that VSD is closed, barring, you know, any complications, which is pretty rare for these surgeries, this is fixed and they go on and live happy, normal life. So, you know, minute to minute, it's going to be things that, you know, that indicate the heart is, the heart and the body is working hard to maintain cardiac output. So elevated heart rate, elevated respiratory rate, retractions, work of breathing, the, uh, those would be the, the main things to say, like, okay, do I need to do something, like, right now about this, or is this a sort of long-term prognostication? So those are the things you do in the ER, those things you do in, in transport. In clinic, what we're going to be doing is looking at how the baby feeds, um, how long it takes baby to feed, because ultimately, you know, just like heart failure in adults, as heart failure gets worse, the, the exercise capacity goes down. And you know, a, a two-month-old is going to do a six-minute walk, but the main thing, main exercise that a baby does is eat. The harder it gets for them to eat, the more heart failure they're in. And so when they go from taking a bottle in 10, 15 minutes to taking, you know, half a bottle in about 30 and getting tired, that's a problem. And what ends up happening is then the weight, the weight gain falls off. And so what, in, so what we end up doing is, is medically managing until a point of, A, either reason. We get to six months and we've got a good weight and this isn't going away, we'll refer for surgery, or if it's before that, but we've maximized medical therapy and they're still having a hard time eating and not gaining weight, unless there are other major comorbidities or the, or the baby's just really too small, that's going to be an indication to, to go forward with surgery because we've done what we can do at that point. Um, but that's, that's more of a long-term thing. It's more of a clinic follow-up. That's not something that's going to happen, you know, abruptly. The, the things that we would look for when, when a child comes to ER or or when y'all get a call, is going to be, once again, ABC's primary assessment. You know, what's, you know, heart rate being higher than usual, and that because the, the, the heart will maintain a cardiac output for the body. The body needs the oxygen it's going to get, and if some of that stroke volume is getting lost out the lungs, it means that, that heart rate's got to go up to meet it. So if you've got a baby that's sinus in 180s, 190s, 
that's an indication that, okay, this is about this is about what the heart can achieve at this point. That's all, that's all we're going to compensate today. And then we exactly. eventually start getting up to those. The ones that really spook me, I've had a couple over the years that you walk in the door, their heart rate's like 200. Right. Well, is it because they're upset and ticked off because they've had 15 people poking for an IV? Right. Or is it they that that is their way of their heart trying to compensate and that's the only way they can do it? Right. That doesn't mean give them a denison. For right. The, for, for the record, let's so, just exactly. clear that up right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. All right. So we talked a little bit about symptoms. We talked a little bit about, you know, they'll get some some edema sometimes, but most of the time it's, they don't gain the weight. And yeah. That's the, they look malnourished. They look uh, skinny almost, emaciated to a point. Or they're, you tell mom and dad, hey, they look like this normally. No, they look a whole lot worse than they usually do. Right. And they can usually tell you pretty quick. When you start talking about, to me, the, the kids that are misdiagnosed. So the, the term we use, kind of strict term we use around here is dirty baby. Okay. And so it's the two, three, four-week-old, but still technically an innate. Yeah. That is... Missed, underdiagnosed, not diagnosed, totally missed, what have you. Didn't miss it totally in your drill. You go get them, and you're like, hey, I think they, they tell you, well, it, it may be a co-op. Sure. We never get those, just once right. a week. <laughs> hey, can you – we need you guys to come down here right now. This this baby, we're thinking about intubating it. We can't get the SAS book 65. Um, you need to bring all your toys, all your things. When you hear, hey, we're going after that, or hear that baby coming in, what – what trigger fingers for you of saying, hey, we need to manage this kid or well, we don't need to manage this kid, let them be, let them be alone? Sure. So we're talking, again, about sort of the three, four-week mark. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, and, and I guess one other clarification, this is pre-any hospital. This, yeah, is, this is like they're okay. in a – either they're in a back of an ambulance yeah. or they're in okay. a small rural ER that has nothing. So if, if a co-arc is a significant concern, um, one thing you should try to do is evaluate femoral pulses and if you can, break a femoral sort of delay. I will tell you as, as someone who is who, you know, evaluates femoral pulses all the time and, and, and fellowship done cats on babies using femoral access, it's not always easy. Sometimes babies are a little bit sort of chunky in that area. So it, it, it can be difficult to, to do that reliably. However, any indication of, of poor perfusion to the lower extremity. So there's a differential perfusion of the right arm to the lower extremities by cap refill. That's another thing you kind of use. Uh, you know, pulses is going to be the most obvious. If there is, you know, if you got a baby that, that is more skinny, you should be able to get a, a femoral pulse on, and there is a bounding, you know, right brachial and no femorals and poor cap refill in legs. And, yeah, that's, that should be a definite concern for, for coarctation. Some other things. So that baby, however, will not have desaturation. The blood is, is not, you know, barring other lesions along with co-art, but, but let's, or, let's or assume RSV, it's just, just to throw that exactly, out <laughs> Exactly. Let's just, yeah, exactly. Let's just, let's just say that, you know, the only, only cardiac concern would be a car. The baby should not have abnormal sats. And even, even if they're marginal, uh, oxygen should make it better. Okay. So if they, they got a co-art and RSV, then supplemental oxygen should quickly resolve that. Cause that's going to be a VQ mismatch, Adelex or something like that. You can beat back with, you know, half to one liter nasal cap. Yeah. It's 40%. That's just enough to push exactly. over a little. Exactly. So, so that baby will be normally saturated because the blood is, is, has normal sats going out. It's just not getting out where it needs to go. The other things that could feasibly come around that point in time that would cause desaturation, that's a bit late for transition. That's going to be pretty early in the game. But uh, theoretically, tetralogy of flow could start to um, come about that time. And that's, that's one that could sneak past a, um, a congenital heart screen. 
if you know the, the the old the old terms were sort of used like blue tent and pink tent and and historically the pink tent was on everybody's board of a five-year-old running around the play on the schoolyard and get tired and squatting down and they have tent. well honestly this day and age with the availability of echo and referrals and which we're, we're happy to to do for everyone you you don't end up with that that presentation of a pink tent that far down you know, but what can happen is if they're, you know, more left-right shunt VSD physiology at birth, so they'll have normal SATs, that then over a month or two, pulmonary stenosis starts to get a little bit worse um, just by somatic growth in that area kind of getting pinched down, especially if they have dynamic construction habitat spell, that could certainly be happening. So that's that's another situation where oxygen, you certainly try you certainly try it. That's a, a, you know, you definitely want to bring those saturations up if that's what's going on. And if you have a, a child like that, that's that profoundly desaturated. There's really no justification to say withhold oxygen. If they're if you got sats in 40s, 50s, 60s, I mean, you know, it, you have to the body has to have cardiac output. You know, oxygen in the truck from wherever you are to us for that, you know, up to two three hours max. You're not going to, you know, back backpedal so far on clinical management. You know, when you're like that, if, if you're chasing, if you got like 88 and you're chasing 92, I mean, okay, maybe you can haul from that. But I mean, if you're that profoundly bad, then if you're going be, below yeah. 70, don't worry about it. Yeah, pretty much. I'm glad you said it that way because a lot of people, we get taught in all these classes, you know, we have to maintain all these certifications and it's everybody from every level, EMT all the way up, you know, baby ER nurses, everything. And they're like, hey, if they've got a, if it's a congenital heart defect kid, you can't give them oxygen. Well, but, yeah, it's true yeah. to a point, you don't want to give them a lot, but right. the first couple hours, you're not going to make it or break it. It's one right. of those, if the kid's that sick, you're better off to give them something. Yeah. They need the pressure. It's usually what they need more than anything else. Right. But give them a little bit of yeah. something if that's all you got. And a lot of people don't even blenders. They don't have medical air. So they have no way to do it other than 100% FIO2. The, the, the child that, that's, that that dogma was designed for is the single ventricle neonate. So if you have a child that, that you know, probably the easiest conceptual way to think about it is a, a child with hyplastic left heart syndrome in which there's no ventricle, you know, no left ventricle, no realistic, no left atrium, and a diminutive aorta, where all cardiac output to the body has to go out the right ventricle through the pulmonary artery and go across the ductus. That's a little bit different either than the VSD, because you know, at that point, the, the branch point is just about resistance. So if you have a, a, a hypoplast that has SATs, you know, 80, 85, which is what they're going to have, because, you know, you have completely mixed blood at the right, right ventricle level, it's got to go out and make a choice to the lungs to the body. Yeah, if you chase that with 100% oxygen, and then God help you if you chase if you're in the NICU and you chase that with with nitric, yeah, you will drop the pulmonary vascular resistance so far that you get nothing out to the body and you and you cause shock. So you don't want to you don't want to do that. And single ventricle lesions, you don't want to to do that as a therapy. But as a diagnostic test, I mean, it, it does come up every once in a while that I, I bring this up and remind us to people. But you know, one of the the primary old diagnostic tests for this in these situations, and one I still advocate if you're out in the field and don't know what you got going on is hyperoxia test. Get an arterial, 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 <laughs> not venous, arterial blood gas, 100% oxygen for 10 minutes and repeat the blood gas. And, you know, there's a, there's a schematic of how much of a, of an increase certain things will be, but you know, one of the, one of the, the old past, um, cardiac, Pete's cardiologist here actually passed away a few years ago. David Watson used to tell pediatric residents, if you don't get over a, a PAO2 over over 150, you have not ruled out general heart disease. So that is still a useful thing for 10 minutes, but you do that for 10 minutes. Okay. Once you do that for 10 minutes and you, and you rule heart disease in, you back it back right. off. Come, right. come, come back down. Exactly. Bit. Yeah. The, the problem comes when you, when you do those therapies aggressively for a prolonged period of time in someone who very clearly is not responding to that therapy, but in the significantly desaturated, 
you know, baby, especially a few weeks out, because if they're ductal dependent and we're at a month, I mean, I'm not going to say it can't happen, but that's, you're probably looking at something non-hypoplast, not tritreus, things like that. So um, it'd be better to just keep them as stable as possible to the tertiary center, get evaluated, and then we'll, we'll sort it from there. So talking a little bit about, talking a little bit about treatment pathways. So a couple of different things that come up usually with us are one, talk about prostins mm-hmm. and trigger pulls of prostins, some of the things you watch out for, but, and then arrhythmias. And sometimes these kids do get really, really tacky, or sometimes they go into complete heart block and they're real fun to deal with. Yes, <laughs> That's it's usually the really bad day for me, Yeah, selfishly speaking. But when you think about prostins, what are you thinking about a kid that may need prostins because you want to keep that ductus open? Is there a certain trigger pull, or is it pretty? Hey, you're never you're never gonna hurt somebody with giving prostins. Well, yes and no. So there are, there's definitely a, a risk to prostins. We'll get into that in a second. Um, so I, I think, you know, from a you can take this one of two ways. If you're gonna do a, a neo transport, you know, if you've if you've got concern for you know significant general heart disease, baby comes out with saturations 50 to 60, they don't improve on oxygen. You have concern for transposition. That's the reason to go ahead and start prostins if, you know, CCAC or screens failed or if, you know, you got a baby that's sat in 80-85, poor pulses. That'd be a reason. A lot of times, there, a lot of places they'll come from, there, there's generally some ultrasound ability. A lot of places where we, we take calls from do have do have the availability of echo, and we, can, and we read those here. So we can at least get some indication from from just about any ER that this child is going to end up at to go. And then and certainly from a NICU, they're going to go from. Um, so there's that sort of group. But then there's, we're kind of going back to that four-week old. So if that four-week old shows up and there's concern for coart, I would absolutely recommend prostin. And it's not so much that you want the ductus back open. One, what what the prostins do in that situation, the, the ductal tissue actually kind of encircles part of the aorta. And that's why these, quote-unquote, discrete or juxtaductal ones kind of form and, and are hard for us to pick up because as the ductus arteriosus shrinks and becomes ligamentum, it, it sort of ensnares the, the aorta with it. And an aorta that was reasonably open enough before, two or three weeks starts to clamp down and become, you know, a shoestring. And so what we're shooting for with the prostins is just to undo a little bit of that, even if we don't open the duct, if we're just relaxing that, that sort of area around it just enough to allow a little bit more cardiac output while on the way to either cath or surgical intervention, that's what we're trying to do. That's a high dose. If we're doing, you know, for maintenance of a duct in a one-day-old, you can do 0.01, 0.02, and that's generally fine with, you know, minimal issues. If you're trying to open up, you know, in an emergent situation, we're generally recommending 0.1 at least. And um, and so that gets to, so for the transport thing, one of the things I was taught as as a fellow going through my, my cardiac ICU rotations, because we did take some of the transport calls, the problem with prostins, I mean, fever, but that's sort of a long-term thing, but apnea. Okay, and apnea is, um, I've, I've not been on transport, but uh, I'm told that apnea is not a fun thing to have to deal with on, on, no, a, on a helicopter or a truck. it's not right. really the best time. So generally what, what we would kind of recommend and what I think is a good idea is if you're going to make that decision, make it 45 minutes before the, before the flight or before the transport. Because, it's, and, it, and if you're going to do point one, just go ahead and intubate. The baby is going to go apneic, that's fine. If you're going to do a lower dose for maintenance, you know, give yourself 30 minutes to an hour maybe to watch and see if the child is, is going to have apneic spells. It will generally happen within that time because time to peak is pretty short. So if you can start it up and watch them for 30, 45 minutes and there's no apnea, you feel a little, you feel better about starting the transport process with that. If it's going to be a long transport or if it's going to be a flight, it's reasonable to consider going ahead and, pro- and prophylactically intubating, sedating, intubating, because you don't want to have to do that 
in you know in the middle of the air. So that's that's the one consideration for transport with process. In in general, you know, other things are pretty well manageable. There can be a little hypotension, a little flushing, a little fever, but you know, not, nothing really that is a prohibitive thing um, with that. So that's the one thing we always talk about is you know how do you want to manage the airway you know, for, for that transport, for that. So one of the things we would ask is how long the mail process for? And if the mail process is for a day, okay, great. That's, that's fine. The mail process for, you know, since the start of the call, have the transport team be aware and plan out, you know, how they, how they might approach that. And a lot of times we're, we're actually taking process wherever we're going because we've got it and somebody's yep. out of it or they don't have enough or I, yep. I will never forget flying literally five minutes from here one night at 3 a.m. because they didn't have any. Yep. And walked in the door and we're like, okay, here you go. And boom, initiated process. And we're like, I feel yep. really bad for doing this, but it was the right thing to do for the baby. For us, we do a lot of prophylactic intubation it, mm-hmm. anyway for safety of the patient, safety for us, safety for whatever. Right. It's not something that's totally unheard of, especially process, like you said, higher dose. Anybody, anytime we're initiating or it's been initiated within 12 hours, generally speaking, I don't want to speak for everybody on the team, they're going to tube them. That's just, it makes us feel a little bit better about life. Right. No, and I agree because you, you don't want to do, you know, you want as, as few things as possible. I know I'm telling you all this, but you want as few things as possible you have to do on the transport. It's a, a big consideration. That's, that's something that is most likely to be safe. You know, a, a skilled team is going to be, you know, effective and, you know, and, and as, long, as long as you have a team, you know, everything is risk method. You know, clearly y'all's team is going to be used to maybe in neo-transports. Any other team would have to sort of evaluate themselves and, and kind of figure out, you know, what is, where the risks and benefits are with that. So let's talk a little bit more about the arrhythmias yeah. or the, the, the fun things. Sure. Like home. So let's do, uh, we'll do techie and then we'll do the, the not fun stuff. Yeah. So we're, we get a kid and same, we'll do this, I'm doing this three, four week old, same thing, same round again. And you know, the kid, the heart rate's 200. We talked about how that might bother you already. That's compensation for cardiac output. That's the only way they can mitigate their stroke volume. Is there a number, I'm not a numbers guy, but is there a number or a quantifiable assessment that says, hey, we may need to slow this down a little bit because of the safety of the kid? Or is it one of those you just kind of let it ride and see how the kid goes? No, there's not so much a specific number that is of itself a a trigger. I, I think that you know, for me, there's a couple of different, you know, sort of breakdowns. First is, is, is it sinus? And, try, and trying to get a, as best of an assessment of that as possible, because then you have a, a few different questions. Is there heart failure of the shunt kind? Is there like myocarditis? Is there a, you know, pericarditis, pericardial effusion? You know, if, if it's a sinus tack that fast, and you have to start asking about other non-arrhythmia forms either that involve the heart or don't, that, that might be causing that. So, you know, the first sort of branch point is going to be, does it just appear to the best of, of your ability to be sinus. And things I look for for that is is at least some variability. Okay, maybe it's 200, maybe it goes down like 195 and 205, and as the baby calms down a little bit, maybe it comes down like 190 and then get mad and it goes like 210. So just some kind of wonder about it. You know, a, a reentering arrhythmia, while it can, over a long period of time, have a little bit of a kind of get a little faster, get a little slower, reentry is generally going to be pretty solid. So if they're mad, it'll be 200 for a baby is a little low. It'd be 240. If they're mad, it'd be 240. If they're calm, it's 240. Anything in the middle would be 240. It'd be 240 or whatever the number is, kind of regardless of state. So, you know, evaluating to see if there's a little bit of fluctuation that will help you know if it's sinus. And then you start asking, you know, secondary questions of, okay, why do I have, why does the body think it needs more cardiac output? Is it because the heart isn't providing it? Is it because the body is is using too much? Is there, you know, sepsis? Is is the baby dehydrated? They, they run out of formula. That's been a you know, problem too. So a lot of things that kind of get, you know, kind of send you down that path once you do that. If it does not seem to be sinus, then it's narrow complex, wide complex. 
And even those are really more about, once again, the primary assessment. So even if, if you do identify, you know, an, a, an arrhythmia or, or a potential arrhythmia, you know, ABCs, how, how is, how is the patient tolerating this? And, um, and yeah, you know, 240, 250 is not fun to look at and, and not something I would want, you know, the child to be in for a prolonged period of time. But, you know, once again, we have, you know, everything y'all do, you have to assess a, a risk and benefit. If, if of, they're smiling and happy and taking right. a bottle at 240 and living life, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, Which, I'm not going to touch them. Yeah. And, and you, you know? it'd probably be, you know, what they'll, what you probably get is a, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. I mean, like, you know, if that's what you get, then you just, you know, bring them on and we'll sort it out here. What you're probably going to end up getting is a child who's not quite acting right, but has a blood pressure within reason is maybe a little bit tachypnic, but not, not significant, not retracting, something like that. Just in some, some form of mild distress, just like you would probably be with a heart rate of, you know, comparatively be like 190, <laughs> yeah. 200. So, you know, you wouldn't love it, but at the same time, if your perfusion was stable, you know, so that, that's where you're going to have to make a decision. If you're far, if you're far away and have a, have a reasonable setup with your transport, you could consider, you know, going to start intervention, especially vagal maneuvers and kind of break, you know, break into that some, you know, so vagal maneuver has very little, you know, risk to it. So that's, it's a reasonable thing. Even if you, even if you're concerned at sinus, or even if you think it might be sinus, you could do a vagal because it should slow sinus rate down too a little bit until they get mad and, come and pop back up. But it's a very reasonable thing to do it for evaluation of that. For babies, it's, it's ice to the face and can't you know, see me, but the, the, the way to do that is to hold the ice in one hand and bring the baby's forehead to the ice, to down to the ice like that. Basically trying to get the, the dive reflex onto, onto that. You don't take the ice up to the forehead and you don't smother the baby with the ice. So forehead down to it's the bag of ice. poor form. Just right. Exactly. <laughs> but some people think that. Some people think, oh, you smother the baby yeah. and make some, I mean, yeah, it'll make them vagal, but well, you read, not really. Well, I mean, I'll be honest, when I read it in the textbook first time I read it, I was like, okay, cool. I just take it and throw it. In the, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. So bring, so and you're trying to get quote unquote dive reflex, which is basically going to make the baby bear down for a second and then take a deep breath. And, and, and hopefully that will, you know, initiate the vagal, uh, the vagal response. Uh, you know, carotid massage and things like that don't work well with, with infants. And obviously they're not going to be able to do any kind of valsalva. So that's really kind of what you're, what you're left with. For older kids, those are things you can do. You can, you know, once you get to a school age kid, the ice of the face doesn't really work. Then you're modified valsalva. So generally if they, if you can get them to understand the process of acting like they're going number two, then that's fine. Otherwise have them blow through a straw, pretend to blow in their thumb, basically anything to, Tense up the, you know, the abdominal muscles and push against that will initiate the, the vagal response. Those are things that can be done anywhere by anybody. We tell families those, those maneuvers for patients who are diagnosed with SVT in case of a breakthrough. The reality is after about 15, 20 minutes of it starting, those may or may not work because the heart gets so revved up into the, you know, adrenergic response that it just is too much for just that to overcome. So then you get into, you know, secondary interventions and, Adenosine being, you know, being the treatment of choice. So this is where technically wide and narrow complex is going to deviate. Although if, again, if you have, you know, there's a lot of wide complex rhythms that can still be SVT. SVT with pre-excitation. So if there's a bystander pathway, it'll look wide with a bundle branch block or even a type of, of SVT that you get in Wolf Parkinson White that goes the backwards way that usually does where it's a wide complex rhythm. If they're stable, is reasonable to give adenosine, even if it's even if it's Y complex. You know, the prescribed dose, the the, the 0.1 and then the per kilo, and followed by yeah. the 0.2. I, I typically round up to a number that's you know easy yeah. to give. And so so this is another so this is something for, for transport people. So it's it's reasonable to to give that. Um, certainly, if if the patient seems uncomfortable or in distress, um, 
it's, it's absolutely reasonable to give, and it's in general safe. There are two things that, that anyone administering it should be aware of and prepared for. The, probably the more common thing to see is you can get a little bit of bronchospasm, especially if a um, patient has history of asthma. Again, y'all are aware, you know how to manage your airway, you'll have some albuterol in hand, and, and so that's, that's an important reason to, to always have, you know, some airway meds and airway drugs available when, when given adenosine. And it's, it's also worth asking family if, you know, if he has an albuterol inhaler, ever been hospitalized for asthma, things like that. The other potential thing you can do, adenosine does a, a side effect where it can actually induce atrial fibrillation. It's, it's fairly rare, but you can have that happen. And in a child that may get there very quickly. And so you could have a rapid ventricular response. So being prepared to either cardiovert that if you need to, it probably would be short, short-lived or you could rate control that until even the ones I've seen it. I've seen it a couple of times in adults, even those that kind of come out of it yeah. within 10, 15 minutes max that, that right. you're going to sit there and go, all right, do I need hang dilt or whatever now? But right. most of the time they just bounce right back out of it. Yeah. And that, that kind of goes to, you know, fit, uh, everybody kind of kind of laughs when I say this, but fibrillation as a electrophysiologic construct is very unstable. The heart does not tolerate being in fibrillation and that's in either chamber, you know, V-fib. I mean, there's a lot of our, patient long QT and things like that to have short runs of torsade. And we see that on either Holter or Link or something like that. And we know to, to, to change the medications, but the heart doesn't like doing that rhythm. And it takes a, a pretty significantly altered substrate to be able to hold that for a long period of time, long enough to become problematic. So a lot of kids have, even with SVT, have a structurally normal, well-working well heart with um, an atrium, doesn't have a lot of scar and doesn't have a lot of fibrosis from, you know, the things that adults have that give you atrial fibrosis. And so FIB doesn't usually hold long in kids, uh, but it can. And so, it, you know, any team giving uh, adenosine needs to be prepared for the possibility of AFib RVR and either cardioverting if you if you feel like that's necessary or, yeah, DILT, yeah. Toprol, something like that to rate control until you get where you're, where you're trying to go. So when you think about tacky stuff, we talked about adenosine a little bit. Is there, talking about the narrow and the wide, if you've got something that's tacky that's ventricular in nature, there's a lot of drugs out there we play with a lot for adults. Amio, lidocaine, procainamide, mag. Mag's coming a big trend here now, adults. What are your thoughts on as far as wide complex tachycardia or frequent uh, PVCs that are not oxygen in nature? So, like, you got something, hey, they're getting oxygen. It's not something I can just quickly fix. They give them a little something. It didn't work. What's your go-to? Well, uh, you know, I think... That's a loaded question. I know, right? <laughs> so <laughs> for a cardiologist, I get yeah, it. <laughs> that, that gets a little bit tricky. Why complex tachycardia is not SVT? You know, so I, I guess the question, if you got this, this person in transport and you gave adenosine and literally nothing happened after two doses of it, it's still the same, which means, which means two things. Number one, it, it didn't get to the heart and didn't have the effect. But if we can see that there is essentially VA dissociation where the V's are going faster than A's and it's, it's coming to ventricles. So I, I guess in that situation from a primary stand, you know, primary encounter standpoint, it depends on ABCs and stability. If you've got somebody that's unstable, amio is probably the way to go. If, if their blood pressure is poor, they're not tolerating this rhythm, you got a long way to go to get somewhere, then amiodarone is the right drug. I, in general, as a EP person, I hate amiodarone. Because, yeah, it's a great antiarrhythmic, but it lasts forever. And it's very hard to convert from that to anything else safely. And knowing if you're actually going to cover anything, because I can start another med and it still doesn't come back. And like, well, it could be because the med's working. It could be because it's not amyl, still, yeah. right? But it, at the end of the day, you got to do what's right for the patient. The patient's not tolerant. you got to get rid of it. For that purpose, amio is great because it is a one of my 
colleagues, you know, like to joke about it, about it being a nuke, and he's absolutely right. It does every, you know, every class of anaerobic, even though amiodarone is technically considered a, a potassium channel blocker in class three, it has sodium channel blocking properties. It has calcium channel blocking properties as the potassium. And it also alters the cyclic AMP pathway that beta blockers do. It does everything. It just completely wipes the board and fairly safely, because even though, you know, the, the potassium channel blockers tend to prolong the QT interval, which Amio can do since it has so many other factors to it as well, you don't run into that nearly as much as you do with sodalol and ticacin. So it's, it's safe to administer slowly. The one problem is that if you give it quickly, and I've seen a, an ER, not around here, but previously give a whole syringe of it, basically pushing like adenosine, and that patient got profoundly hypotensive. So don't do that because it has alpha alpha blocking properties as well, and that will last quite a while. Um, but otherwise, it's fairly safe, and it does not have, for us, does not have uh, negative iotropic properties like a lot of them do. Burkanamide has a, is a heavy neg negative iotrope. Lidocaine, not so much, but lidocaine, you know, there's, so, there's some wide complex rhythms that lidocaine will work for, very few narrow complex rhythms, and, and only, you know, the right kind of VTs will. Beta blockers obviously are, have some negative iotropes, so, so all these things, if you don't know what the heart, heart function is, is and you got somebody who's really sick it's a little sketchy i've still used some in in those instances and and still worked but at the end of the day that's kind of where amio comes in and if that's what you got then that's that's what we have to deal with but if you got if if you have this patient who's you know the, the nice thing about you know vts especially in our our population a they're not very common because a lot of the vts you're gonna run into are in, in adults are going to be some form of re-entry oriented they, they've had a, a a scar from from a previous mi or something like that that's leading to re-entry around that and that's going to cause you know the sort of a re-entry vt or some of the old school people call it ventricular flutter which is not really a term but it, it makes a little bit of sense because that's what it's doing it's going around one little spot you know that's that's what's going to cause a lot of those. our kids if they have vt it may be the congenital heart disease group in which case amiodarone would be the right the right drug because they're probably not going to be tolerating very well if they're especially single ventricle and it's going to be kind of complicated to treat that anyway that's fine well, they've already got a, and they've already got a dinged anotrope so you can't exactly you, they, you need to every bit of anotropic properties you can exactly i, I like yeah. all the all the other things and how i can manipulate them and use them but to me amio makes the most sense yeah. especially in this population we're talking about but the rest of them are going to be more of an ectopic thing which is not going to be as fast and they're probably going to be tolerating it so honestly if the abcs check out they're tolerating okay they got a funky rhythm on the monitor, but they're mentating fine. They got a good blood pressure. I'd say transport and we'll, we'll sort it out once we, once we get things kind of under a, a control fashion. But if you have, if you have a wide complex rhythm and a pediatric patient that's not, not tolerated for one reason or another, yeah, I'd probably pick Amio to, to do if you, if all, if that's all you could do. What's your thoughts on, I mentioned mags coming this way back, especially in adults. What's your thoughts on mags, especially with when you're dealing with these kids, we talked about a little bit of pulmonary insults. They have some kind of bronchospasm. Magda's wonderful for those. What's your thoughts on treating arrhythmias with MAG? So I have to look into exactly what they're treating. I, MAG is a quote, usually quote, membrane. It's, it's usually the ventricular stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a but, membrane stabilizer, and it's, and it's absolutely what you'd use for, you know, polymorphic torsi, polymorphic VT torsi, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm totally for it. I mean, it's got very little, I mean, I guess you get a little bit hypotensive with it. But aside from that, very little, you know, side effect. You know, I think that might come down to the history. You know, I think if you've got if you've got a kid that otherwise normal heart, no heart surgeries with something Y complex, sure, worth a shot. I think if you've got a Fontan who, you know, maybe has some questionable function to begin with and they're not tolerating whatever they're in, then you're kind of falling back to the old school. Let's talk about the, the not-so-fun stuff. So okay. the, the, they go into a block. Okay. Or they get, they get real 
second degree type two or third degree all the way, whatever it may be. They get a, you get a bradycardic kid immediately. First thing on everybody's list is make sure they have positive pressure ventilation or they have an adequate respiratory effort, what have you. Sure. That's fixed. And we don't have a fix in our heart rate. What, what's your pathway going down this? A lot of, a lot of people will say, okay, I want to try atropine or I want to try some people go straight to pacing. What's your thoughts on those? So is, is, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I think it depends on what you have in front of you. We'll just take the easiest, which would be just complete third-degree heart block. The, the question would be kind of the chronicity of it and, and probably need more of the secondary survey to figure out exactly what's going on. Because you basically got one or two options. If, if this is not, let's, let's say this is not a neonate or infant. Let's say this is, you know, a school-age kid, teenager. The two options here are basically either A, this is some form of myocarditis that, and myocarditis can affect the, the conduction system as well as, or sometimes independently of the, the myocardium itself. That could certainly be at play and something to look out for. And so that secondary survey would probably involve, you know, a, a viral illness a week or two prior, not feeling good recently, probably some vomiting, stomach ache, fatigue, decreased appetite in the last few days. If you don't have any of that, the other question is, has this been congenital? It's been like that forever and they now have flu or something that, that has caused... It exacerbated everything else and made it 10 times worse. Right. A- ABCs. Are they, are they mentating? Do they, do they show any kind of sign that their biggest problem is chronotropic intolerance? And so if, if you have a, you know, a kid who's got good perfusion and is mentating okay but has respiratory stress, that's probably not... I mean, certainly there can be some pulmonary edema, especially if other things are added to it, but... You know what you're going to get out of low heart rate is is poor cardiac output, and so if the cardi- if the signs of cardiac output are okay, but you've got you know respiratory stress with other signs of pneumonia, pneumonitis, something like that, it might be that that had been there before. But you know if if you have more the the first pattern, which which happens where they have some signs of myocarditis and they don't seem to be doing well, if they are, it's kind of like amio. If you if you have chronotropic intolerance and they are suffering from that, particularly with heart rates, which should be significantly less than 60, uh, pacing with the answer, okay? You know, if that you would have to get around that, and so sedating and transcutaneous pacing would be the most effective route. You know, certainly for, rel- for relative bradycardia, atropine, epinephrine are going to be, you know, your first lines, at, with atropine probably being higher than epi for, for most things, certainly worth a try. Because it's, especially if there's anything that's not third-degree heart block. If you've got, like, second-degree heart block and some of these signs, then, yeah, atropine, epinephrine, because those might be able to recruit back just enough of the AV node to kind of bring you back around. Put it back in line, right? Exactly. To go. exactly. But if it's a complete third-degree, you know, you can still try that, but I feel like what's probably happening at that point is it was there to begin with. A lot of times the myocarditis, I've, I've, I've seen actually a, an infant with myocarditis present in a heart block, but it was variable when she was – calm she was complete heart block with a heart rate about 70 and uh, it's actually a great story I, I, i'm gonna come back to that and but then when she got mad her heart rate kind of popped up to 120 or so it was kind of kind of a weak box so, it, so this was this was actually my my last year in residency at, at vanderbilt and um residency can have a weird time because you kind of feel like you're just like a a, we, a cog in the whole system and don't really do anything but i was i was in the er it's like probably the, the one time i feel like i actually like personally did something for a patient in the whole time of residency. It was my last, the literal last month of third year, and I was in the ER. It was one of those nights, there's just a whole bunch of people there. And so as a third year, I just picked like three patients that kind of looked like they didn't really have any reason to be there to kind of like clear them out so the interns could like go take the fun stuff and learn from it. And one was an eight-month-old that was there for vomiting at, t- you know, 10.30 p.m. It's like, ah, okay, fine. 
So I go in there and, and the, the baby's in mom's arms and, you know, it looks comfortable, looks totally fine. The, we had this, the, the, our system at the time was like there would, there would be the sheet of paper, this face sheet that had a little bit of back stuff and then the vitals and the, and the, the, the face sheet said heart rate 126 on it. And so, and it was like vomiting today. Okay. So I go in and talk to mom and the, you know, yeah, she started vomiting today. And so like, she had a, she had a cold about, you know, last week we got better from that. And the only thing like she said to like threw me off a little bit, is like her lips are a little blue today, but that cleared up. And then she just like didn't want to eat. And so like, ah, okay, this is, you know, so I'd already like started the like, okay, baby's vomit, baby get, you know, stuff while I started doing my exam. And I listened to her and her heart rate was like 70. And an eight-month-old. And I'm just like, I'm sort of listening. I was like, she's not on monitor, not on anything. I was like, this seems a little slow. I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm, I keep listening and think it's going to speed up, and it doesn't. So now mom, like, sees me, and she sees I'm worried, and I'm kind of so like, that, okay, okay. Yeah. I was like, okay, okay, listen, 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 listen. Your baby's fine. Okay. I'm just going to get an EKG, and just because it's a little slow, we're just going to make sure it looks fine. And I ordered the EKG, and while, they, while that was coming, they, they threw a monitor. She's a complete heart block. <laughs> just sitting there with a heart rate of 70. I'm like, oh, man, really? And, so, and so much for that easy three. Right. Well, yeah. And so the proponents <laughs> were 12 and she had myocarditis and, um, and that was, that was how she presented. And, um, yeah, it, it, it kind of scares me. Cause like, you know, it was on the one hand, like it was like, Oh, it was a great case. Like how many of those kids have I, have I discharged? Like, you know, just after, okay, you got normal vitals, you look great. Like, you know, it's, it's an eight month old with some vomiting, Right. So, um, so vitals are vital. Like, uh, you know, that would have been a, a total miss if, if I hadn't, you know, just wave the stethoscope around. Patient to, assessment's <laughs> important. You have right. to do your own, make sure it's right. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's the thing. So, but that was, that was a crazy thing. I actually like felt a little stupid for just a second because, all right. So as, as, as happens here, like this was back in the back hall, yeah, you know, cause right, it was yeah. eight months old. Well, as soon as that having to move the kid to trauma two and everybody's in there, poking, and they're all, everybody's wigging right. out. They're like, well, Oh my God. Oh my well, God. So then, then when they get the EKG, they poke the kid. And, and so that, that same kind of thing that, that catecholamine response kind of woke the note, the node back up. Now it's a secondary heart block. And the cardiology thing is like, Oh, it's not complete. It's like, I know what I saw. Okay. I, I don't want to hear it from y'all. Just give it a second. It's going to come back. Like, Come on. So, so that's that's the other thing. You know, the the myocarditis, even the fulmet ones, should probably have a little bit of a of a wobble. Of okay, it's third. Now it's winky bog. Now it's second. Now it's quote unquote high grade, which means like it's third degree, except for every so often where you can see one QRS that gets pulled in. It, it really probably. I mean, there's, there's nothing that's that's a hundred percent or zero percent, but it should probably not be just a fixed thing if it's truly that it's myocarditis from a a, a block from myocarditis. So in those situations, yeah, referring to, to PALS, atropine, epinephrine. All the things. Yeah, that's what we were doing. Play with the dopamine, heaven forbid that drug. I, I don't... Yeah, I mean... It has it, its ways, but... And all, you know, there, I mean, there's a number of them that you could... you could When babies have congenital heart block, like when they, they have, you know, complete congenital heart block out the chute, and, you know, we, we want to try to temporize that before implanting a pacemaker. Isoproteranol is another thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know... Yeah, in theory, it's fine. What usually happens, though, with ISO, so ISO makes a bit of sense because you don't get the alpha, which can then kind of feed back onto the whole um, heart rate system. So you only get the beta 1, beta 2. And the beta 1, okay, great. That's that's what I want. I want the contractility and I want the rate. But but you get beta 2, which then vasodilates. And and so you, you run into this little thing. If the beta 1 can't actually act on the node because the node is just dead and gone and it's has smooth. been, and all you get is, is, is hypotensive and you're still, you know, still break So you might get like, and this actually happened recently. We had a baby with, with congenital heart blocks, pretty slow. Tried ISO. We got like five points of rate. I went from like 45 to 50, but over about two hours, the blood pressure started to fall because it's a beta two agonist. And so, 
you know, it, that ends up being we. I think we did switch to Epi for a little bit, which then kind of like brought that back up. But it, it's but a little bit. Counteracting the ice and it's, kind of doing yeah, weird. it's it's kind of arranging. Eventually, you get to the point where you're arranging deck chairs with that, and you have to either decide if pacing's gonna be needed or not. And that's that's where that's where we were with this one. So, so then the congenital ones, like if you're transporting a baby with congenital complete heart block, which happens, it really is just a matter of ABCs there because you know long term. You know, generally we just, we assign a, an average rate of 50 as too low, and we'll say they're going to need pacing because a they're just not going to thrive. B there's some there's some old data that says they have higher instance of Stokes Adams attacks and 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 sudden death with that low of heart rates. So we pace for the long term, not for the minute to minute. The minute to minute is okay. We'll just hang tight while we you know watch you and you know go to the OR for that for that procedure. So if you're transporting that baby and they're looking fine. There's really nothing else you need to do from point A to point B. It's a, if their secondary assessment looks like junk, for example, then all right, right. I'll start playing with them. Real quick, I want to talk about the the in between procedures. So they talk about the hypoplastic lefts yeah. or the, the those that are they're having a series of procedures to fix their defect or right. what have you. Those are the ones that honestly concern a lot of the people on our team. Yeah. And it's because you you get this distress call of hey they're they were doing fine they went home everything was hunky dory. And then we get there, and they're going to go outside the yard, outside, call EMS, call 911, appropriate like everybody gets taught to do. And they are in a third-degree heart block now. They didn't have one before. Everything was fine. You can, you know, we can pull them up on Epic or whatever you, or they're in complete respiratory stress or respiratory failure. For you, is there anything we could do better? Is there anything we need to manage besides ABCs of these kids? Do we want to try to avoid intubating them? Obviously, unless we have to, but it's one of those if they can't yeah. maintain, you got to have to do something. Are there any things we need to do different because they're in the middle of procedures versus others? So I, th- I think that population fortunately represents a pretty small population of, of our overall you know following, but you're absolutely right. They are extremely high risk, extremely tenuous. So much so that there's, there's a whole national you know, database and sort of consortium about how to best keep those babies alive. The hypoplastic left heart, the overall survival to Fontan and, and H5, you know, through through all that to H5 is still about 70% range, okay, which is a lot better than it used to be. It used to be zero, honestly, but it's increased over time. It's still pretty low, you know, as you compare it to everything else. And a lot of that 30% of loss happens between those around the first stage and between stage one and stage two. So there's a lot of there are a lot of players and there's a lot of of you know thought in that process. I think Probably the most consistent thing that I could tell you and your team to do in those situations is to call us and the intensive care team as early as possible in the process because everyone's going to be a little bit different. You know, yeah, in general, you want to avoid certain positive pressure ventilation. However, you also don't absolutely do not want to get into a point where you're respiratory failure in transport. So a controlled intubation prior to transport is probably going to be the right thing to do. Fluid management is a little bit tenuous because, you know, they can be, they do, they are still shunted, so they can be fluid overloaded. However, uh, a lot of them will rely on a, you know, Gore-Tex graft uh, to take all the blood to the lungs, which when too dry can be procoagulant. So sometimes you have to give fluid, sometimes you have to diurese, sometimes it's hard to kind of know. So it, I think probably the most consistent thing to do is, you know, ABCs, treat the baby that's in front of you. If you have a baby respiratory stress that appears to not be able to tolerate what you know whatever transport is about to be necessary then then intubation prior to that transport is probably the better idea but realistically they should have a we should already know about this to be honest because they 
all these families have a sort of red flag checklist to, to call us, to call EMS, to call 911, to call everybody. We should already be notified about that. Our, our interstage team, which actually takes care of just these patients along with the cardiology team who's linked in with cardiac surgery should also be aware. They should are, we should already be in contact with our cardiac ICU. So you really should never be at a dearth of people to talk through this. And, and hopefully MedCom would be able, what I would expect is, and when this comes through, MedCom should be uh, notified and they can get, you know, cardiology and ICU on the phone at the same time we all have this conversation. Because it, it may not be one, not all these will fall in the same bucket. We, we have one, one kid right now in that group that has two shunts. One goes to one side, one goes to the other. And like, they're not the same size. And so, you know, it, it, it's hard to, you know, some of these things we can come up with if, then, this, then do this. But this group is probably one where the best thing to do is try your very best to coordinate everything. And if that fails, treat the baby out in front. The baby out in front of you is profoundly, it's probably one, probably the only thing I say that is a, a uni, universal. If they're profoundly desaturated, like below 40, 50 can't even measure on the, on the SAT monitor, and are a single ventricle, the first thing that should be considered is a shunt clot, uh, thrombosis in the shunt. So what they're, what these kids are going to be is, is if they're after Norwood, the Norwood has, you know, basically two purposes. One to make a stable cardiac output, a stable route for the blood to get to the body that doesn't use the ductus. And the other is to create a shunt to regulate pulmonary blood flow. And if that shunt clots, then it's essentially a saddle P. Okay. And you kind of treat it as such fluids, lots of heparin, generally hundred, uh, hundred units per kilo and oxygen. If that is the concern in the field, which absolutely does happen, fortunately not very often, between not overdiuresing these kids and having them all on aspirin and, you know, other things. But if you have a profoundly desaturated single ventricle in that air stage period, that should be the first consideration, and it would be reasonable for you to start those interventions while talking to us. If they're not profoundly desaturated, if they have saturation, you know, these are all going to be kids where, you know, 75, 85 is the quote-unquote they're normal, sad, so what yeah, they're going to be, they're, yeah. they're normal. I mean, right. every one of them I picked up, their parents have been awesome. They've all yes. been, hey, this is where my kid lives. Yep. This is what the kid, you know, they usually, yep. they're, the, they're the dream patients we have for diabetics where they come in, yeah, they right. can tell you the, <laughs> the sat, yeah. and they're sitting there going, okay, exactly. they're sad at this time was this, and they're sad at this time was this, and their blood pressure was this. And yep. and those are those are things actually that consortium, it's called the MPCQIC, like it's actually a, a, a national thing that every one of those patients in that, while in that period, they actually are, are, we ask them to document all that. And, and we check on them frequently and make sure their document sats at these times. You know, sometimes blood pressures, heart rates at these times, how much they've eaten, you know, so that, so that yeah, when this happens, like, okay, here, it all, here all of it is. Um, and it's because they are such, they are such high risk. Uh, fortunately, that high risk period, you know, is going to last between the, you know, discharge from the Norwood and their Glen, which is generally in the th- four-ish month range. So it's not a super long period of time, but it is very tenuous. And so that's why, yeah, when you show up, you should hopefully have this whole book of like what they take and what they've done and what they're expected to be and things like that. You know, saturations are going to be 70 to probably 70 to 90, depending on what they are and what, what part of their thing they're in. If they're significantly below that probably need oxygen. Cause once again, they can get RSV just like everybody else. So if they're in the sixties, but have good perfusion and aren't you know, profoundly cyanotic, you know, oxygen for DQ mismatch is, is reasonable. If they're worse than that, really consider, you know, shunt thrombosis. If that's what they've, if they've had the Norwood before, not all these babies will have a shunt. The, the, the right side obstructive ones don't always go down the Norwood route, so it's always a question to see if they've actually had that. And, but if they have a shunt, that's a definite consideration. If their SATs are you know, above 75, 
they might need positive pressure ventilation if they have, you know, pneumonitis or RSV right. or one of the fun but, things. But they're unlikely to benefit much from a whole lot of oxygen. So, going back to the thrombosis, which I was really hoping you'd bring up today because yeah. I did much research and I read a much. Is there something? So we have limited tools, limited toys in the toy, the toolbox that we have. We have an ultrasound. We have yeah. we can do twelve leads. We can do all of those fun things. Are there things that you use clinically to help correlate the crop thrombosis? Because obviously most of the places we go to, especially I used to work nights, so I'm slightly biased to night shift. Uh, they cannot do a CTA perfusion or any yeah. of those fun things. And honestly, most kids of that size or nature, most people aren't comfortable doing yeah. anything like that. Uh, gas. I mean, you know, the P, you know, the the perfect, the ideal Norwood, you know, single ventricle gas is seven four forty forty. Okay, so yeah, the the O two is going to be. Terrible, no matter what. It's always going to be junk. Just um, we're going to live with that. Right. But CO2 reasonably should not, you shouldn't really retain. So if you have way high CO2 retention, and I think one of these that, that fairly famously happened early on, the kid had a blood gas and the PO2 was like nine. Okay. That, there, there's your answer. You know, gas, look, I, I know I'm old school, but the gas ABGs are, are very helpful for, for these, for these patients. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you, if you get a, you know, you get a gas and, you know, maybe it's, it, it, they got some RSV-ish kind of stuff and, you know, maybe you look at like a 728-7040, okay, you're holding on a little bit, maybe that's more of a, or 35, I think it'll be 40, it'll be like 30, 35, okay, you're holding on some CO2, you need a little bit of ventilation help, but the oxygen is getting where it needs to go, which means blood's going to the lungs, okay, so maybe that's more of a, of kind of a respiratory problem than a, a plumbing problem, but yeah, if, if the, you have a, just profoundly low PaO2 along with profoundly low saturations, you really should be considering that, you know, there is a problem with the blood actually getting out to the lungs and you have essentially nothing but dead space. Yeah, say big venous and it's just not right. going anywhere. Justifies those eye stats that we, yeah. we, we frustrate <laughs> with a lot. Overdosing, underdosing is one of the things I put up on the screen, but talking about uh, we've had a rash over the last several years about flecking out overdoses yeah. or different um, antidesrhythmics that are primary care and the OD on them. Yeah. Flecking out just, Personally, it's one of those I've dealt with a couple of times. So, I, first one that comes right. to my mind. Do y'all see that pretty often? Is it pretty rare? Is it? Yeah, um, I haven't seen it. I mean, so there were a couple of them right when I got here. There's one right before I got here, and one like the week I got here. Fortunately, I haven't had quite as many after that. I think there's a couple of things that go into flecainide over to or toxicity. You know, one of them is the usual kids get into it and stuff. And that was that was the most recent yeah. one that you know the kid climbed up and opened up and. And took a few swigs. You know, the other that that is a little bit, and one of the reasons I don't inherently love Fleck, uh, but still we still use it. Is a lot of our a lot of our meds have to be compounded. Some don't. So propranolol doesn't. Sodalol doesn't. Amio doesn't. Those all come in pre-made solution from the company. So if I order propranolol, it's twenty to five. That's it's always always and forever. Uh, Sodalol I think is five to one. So those are those are you know consistent. Fleck and I does not come as a as a solution, it, it's it's pill only, so we have to compound it. That's fine. There's all kinds of medications that get compounded, but one thing this is this is actually very important. I, I think. I'm glad you brought that up for transport team to be aware of, as well as I've I've talked about this specifically with the pediatric residents. You know, the compounding pharmacies don't all have to do things the same way. So you know, meds and threads here will, will and, mo, and most compounding pharmacies, to be fair, uh, will run flecainide at ten to one. Okay, which is nice because it limits the amount you have to give. It limits the amount you're, you know, you're buying. You don't have to buy, a, you know, a keg of flecainide to take home. And so, but it requires more precise compounding because to put, you know, ten of things into one is harder than to put five of things into one. 
So there are a few compounding pharmacies um, um, across state and neighboring states that compound to five to one. Okay, that's fine as long as everybody's aware of it. But what happens sometimes is, you know, when the when a resident or med student or whoever it is is, is checking meds on admission, they'll ask, you know, what amount of medication is given. And, you know, so if you have a five to one flecainide that you're taking 10 milligrams of, or 10, I'm sorry, 10 milliliters of, and you put that in the system, you're going to get twice as much fleck from Medzenthrier from our pharmacy as, as otherwise. So it's important to, you know, when y'all are checking things and, and checking meds to see not only what they're taking, but if it's one of these that's compounded, what the compounding you know, ratio is. So that, that actually came up with a family. They didn't have a, a significant flecainide toxicity, but they did take more of the dose because at, at the time of discharge from the hospital, it, was, it wasn't clear. So they took a one dose that was too much, and fortunately the child did, did okay with that, but, but it can be, a, can be a major problem. Fleck overdose is, is problematic because there's not a whole lot to do about it. You know, sodium bicarb, calcium, uh, mag, those things will stabilize the membrane, but it's either you got to you got to give them something to get back that sodium and yeah i know was, uh one case we had here where the, we brought up uh hypertonic you're using three percent or seven and a half percent. some of those studies when we looked it up are like hey this could work couldn't work but yeah. you're just trying to counter the sodium load does it cause yeah. detriment later on the road and you know right. this hypernatremic right. situation see i feel like i feel like that the risk benefit there probably doesn't favor because you know if you can if you can stabilize the rhythm enough for for six to 12 hours you'll get through and that's the most recent one that's what we did we gave bicarb gave mag intubated the kid the the rhythm was was very unpretty but it was it was a y complex sinus okay so we're in sinus rhythm it's super wide uh, yep that's 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 where we're going to be but if it can stay like that, we can stay perfusing, then it will get better over time. If not, you know, that, that was, cause that was the, that was the next question. So, you know, when, when I was down there, like, okay, we've done this, done this, what's next? And honestly, the answer to that is you need to call the surgical team for ECMO because you've got, you, you've got a period of 12 hours that things are going to get better in. If, if the patient clinically can't get there, I think you're going to run into trouble with, with hypertonic. Cause then, okay, yeah, then we're going to jack up that we're going to get, Cerebral edema, the, the, yeah, the whole central saltine, pontine, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to do all that and maybe still not really help because it's, you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, the, the problem with flecainide, the sodium channel blockers are listed in that weird, you know, 1A, 1B, 1C, which is, is I have to go back and see why that is because it, it talks about like the strengths. Basically, 1A is medium strength and then 1B is lower strength and then flecainide is, is 1C, which is strongest. And, and what it is, is, is not so much strength, but it's how long it, it binds to the receptors. And basically, flecainide binds and holds on, you know, most of five seconds. Okay, so it's, it is there. It is, it is there. It's not going anywhere. I, I'm not certain there's enough sodium you could get to that membrane to actually overload it because it just, it can't get into the receptor. So I think you're likely to end up, I have to look at these, these those yeah. studies and everything. Unfortunately, we haven't had it happen so often that's you know, but necessary, but I, I imagine that you're more likely to end up with problems from the hypertonic than you are to actually salvage, especially if you've got a patient who is otherwise in sinus, you know, with a, with blood pressure and perfusion, that's okay. Mentation probably not going to be great, but you know, we got, we can get through that short term and you're probably better off just stabilizing, getting through and, and just trying to let it, you know, ride out. Um, I guess the other thing you could, you know, if you don't want to go all the way to ECMO, one thing would probably be CRRT. You could probably pull it off of that. Um, but again, that that's a know. logistical nightmare, almost as bad as I won't say as bad as ECMO, but right. it's a logistical nightmare. You got to be at the center that can do it and all this. Exactly, exactly. And then we got to get in there. Yeah. So, uh, 
brought up Fleck and I, are there other drugs, and uh, forgive my yeah. naiveness, but is there other drugs that you see that have patients or family or what have you, or compounding pharmacies for that matter, yeah. have issues with that y'all are putting these kids on? Just because I feel like yeah. a lot of the a lot of the drugs that these kids are on are some stuff we don't see all very often right. in kids. It's typically the end stage heart failures in the adults. We don't yeah. see them very often. So, is, is there stuff that you see that you had up with complications with? Yeah, fortunately, not so much. So, um, you know, sodalol would be another high risk one. Um, that's you know, sodalol and Fleck we both admit for for initiation and you know, sodalol usually two days. Fleck and I, you know, one usually covers it. Um, watching for QT prolongation with sodalol. Um, so yeah, theoretically, if you overdose on so excuse me on sodalol, uh, you could certainly run into QT prolongation and and arrhythmogenesis torus off from that. You know, mag would be the the treatment for that a short term. Don't know reversal agent, so you're probably in the same boat uh, trying to you know just temporize and and treat clinically with that. You know, a lot of them. It's kind of the, the good good news, bad news. There's there's not been a ton of new antiarrhythmics, particularly for kids. There's a couple of, you know, Ticacin or Dofetilide came out on the adult side, which is which is kind of along the same lines as soda law with QT prolongation. They'll use that more over there. We we haven't really had a, a, a place. It, it's not it's not FDA approved for kids yet, I don't think, and haven't really found a great place for it. Procainamide, I mean, you're usually not given that oral. Um, usually you're going to do Fleck if you're going to do something like that. And I get, you know, the Dig, but I mean, you know, we generally Digoxin at this point is not primary arrhythmia management more. It's Digoxin, I, I, I kind of joke that Digoxin is, is kind of like Frank's Red Hoss. You just, you just kind of put, put on everything because it, it's got some iotropic effects, so it helps, you know, that. It's got some arrhythmic effects, so it helps that. There was, there was even some preliminary data that's, not quite more out quite as much uh, recently, but but preliminarily those interstage mm-hmm. patients at CHOP seemed to do better when they were on ditch. Now the problem was it was a, a pure retrospective like multicenter pull, so it wasn't clear when they started ditch, how much ditch they went on, why they were on ditch to begin with, if they ever stopped it. It was like okay, we just somehow some way ditch helped. Ditch was in their chart somewhere, so we exactly put them in the it really it, I mean like kind of jokingly, but kind of not. That's basically yeah. it. Like so. It's, it's got, like, all these fun properties to it. Um, but really, we're not doing, you know, digitalizing doses anymore. Uh, we're not on, except for fetal arrhythmias, we give it to the mom. That's one of four medications you really can give, you know. So that's that's a different, you know, thing. But then you get the tinnitus, bradycardia, stuff like that. So we, we don't really run into that very much because um, we're just not just not treating kids with that high dose of the dish. So, yeah, Flex, Sodalol are probably... You know, the bigger ones, um, I haven't heard anybody have an overdose concern on beta blocker, but, like, I mean. Right. You go on and then pace them. And then yeah, it's just, you know, give, right. So, it, you know, usually, if, fortunately, it's just that we don't have that that many, um, and they haven't changed that much over, over time, but. I'm, um, I'm glad so to say that Dig is kind of going out of favor with adults, too, because yeah. it's, it's, yeah. It'll come back, man. Don't worry. It's, uh, it, everybody, it's everybody finds, yeah, everybody it's finds a, a reason to bring the Dig back, but it's great. So. Great. I Man, I appreciate yeah. you coming today. This is awesome. Yeah. Good. I, I hope it was helpful. I'm, uh, yeah. Thanks for coming. And uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah.